Now for the return of Three Take Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Erasable Podcast. We have a very exciting episode for you tonight. Later, we will be playing for you our interview with Doug Nickel, the director of California Typewriter, the new type, uh, new documentary that came out last week on iTunes and that is 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a beautiful piece of filmmaking and a, a great love letter to the typewriter, which we all here on the Erasable Podcast, and we know a lot of you uh, care about deeply. So we're excited to play that interview interview for you. Uh, my name is Tim Wassum, and I am joined by my two favorite writer types, Andy and Johnny. How's it going, guys? So good. So excited for this interview. I'm really happy to be classified as a writer type. I appreciate that. <laughs> Usually I'm just like dad and driver type. <laughs> so this is fan-freaking-tastic. You're a NaNoWriMo winner, if I... If I'm correct, right? Almost two days. Two days. Almost. You're you're on your way. <laughs> I can't really feel my thumb, but <laughs> see, I make it. I I win by just not participating. <laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> so yeah, well, we're very excited for this episode. We're so excited that it worked out to get to talk to uh, Doug Nickel about this really great documentary. But that's that's uh, coming up later in the show. First off, let's uh, just get into our tools of the trade. And Andy, why don't you why don't you get us started? Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm consuming a mango Lacroix or Lacroix, so depending on how you want to pronounce how, it. How is that? It it's, sounds. Eh. It's my favorite of the flavors. It's good. That's I like that. Yeah. Interesting. I, I have this. Virtual pick. I'm I'm still a still a coconut man. Yeah. Yeah. Katie, oh, Katie's a big coconut fruit. fan. Yeah. Uh, you're 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 a pamp fan, Johnny. Yes. Go, go for the pamp. Very much. Yeah. <laughs> I always do for all the brands. Yeah. But sometimes that one really bites you. Yeah. Yeah. The mango is my favorite. The tangerine is my second favorite. The lime is my third favorite. Um, I actually just attended a conference today, a, a conference about design systems. And the keynote speaker, Cameron Mall, is a guy I used to work with at Facebook. And back in like 2000, I think he said 2004. He designed the first LaCroix website in Flash. And <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah that's he's, cool. he's, a, he's the original LaCroix hipster. What a hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. that was fun. Yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, I am, so I'm drinking that. I'm, uh, I just finished, Katie and I just finished the Durrells of Corfu on Masterpiece on PBS uh, on season two. It's really, really a charming show. Um, it's about a British British family during the 30s who go live in Greece, um, and two of the two of the sons from that family, um, Larry Durrell and um, Gerald Durrell, uh, they both became novelists and wrote about this. So these are based on a trilogy of books that the youngest son Jerry wrote. Um, yeah, it's really good. So highly it's recommend. My notes, I definitely read it as the Duracells of Corfu. <laughs> the Duracells. <laughs> they just keep on going. They don't stop. They just keep on going. Yeah. And I'm uh, going to court. <laughs> and we're currently looking forward the, the to. Trilogy is 12 books. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're looking forward to The Crown Season 2 and Victoria Season 2 starting in the next couple of months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, oh. Um, I'm writing, um, as I have been a lot lately, and with my uh, Baron Fake Pocket Vanguard that's inside my. Um, 
my wallet thing, and uh, I'm riding with a Blackwing 530 today because I wanted to use something extra firm for the conference because I was taking a lot of notes and didn't want to sharpen a lot. So just had that in my pocket. Johnny, how about nice. you? So this being November 28th, my consumption consists of Narcos and like really unhealthy amounts of coffee. But I've <laughs> like almost usual. finished. <laughs> Back know, to the classic Johnny of old. Yeah. <laughs> well, during NaNoWriMo, during NaNoWriMo, I sort of like, I don't know, sometimes in the middle of the day, I'm like, no, I don't need another cup of coffee. But now I'm just like, you know, Jack, I'm going to have two cups of coffee, even though it's two o'clock or as is often the case, 11 p.m. So my consumption is only a television show. And I'm at the end of season two of Narcos, which is not usually my um, it's not a subject matter I find myself drawn to. But the show is really, really well done. So if you're. The only person besides me that's never seen it. It's totally worth watching on Netflix. That's me. And um, I am consuming a beautiful Guinness anniversary stout. And I was writing with my um, heirloom italic script. I think it's an SM5 Olympia typewriter. But I'm just using a um, Blackwing MMX on a Field Notes uh, reporter notebook. So yeah. How about you, Mr. Tim? Lately, I've, there's a couple books I've been reading. I actually was going through a, a problem recently, which you might have seen me say on Twitter that I was. I just realized that I was reading like nine books at once. I just like all these books going. I have this uh, disorder where I have no time to read, and so therefore I try to trick myself into thinking that I'm reading a lot by reading lots of different books without realizing that I'm doing that. <laughs> uh, and so I've, I'm in the midst of that, and so whenever that happens, I have to purge them all and then like strip it down to just a couple uh, and so the two that I'm going to mention tonight is that I'm I'm going back and finishing Moonglow by Michael Chabon. I I just picked a copy of that up. I haven't. It's so good. It. It's fantastic. And I was about halfway through and then got just swept away into other things. And now I'm back with it. I'm going to probably finish that up this week. It's a, it's a beautiful book. He's my favorite, favorite, favorite. He's he makes me want to write and write. So I, I love him. And uh, the other book I'm reading is by Shirley Jackson. And it's called We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Uh, and so if you know Shirley Jackson, she's famously the author of The Lottery, the short story that we all read in middle yeah, school about yeah. stoning. Yeah, so she's she's a great writer, kind of like a pre-Neil Gaiman kind of writer. Um, she's, she's really good, and this is a, a really sp- weird story. I don't even know where to start with it, but I, it was on a lot of lists of great novellas because you know my interest and obsession with novellas it shows up pretty often and was recommended by some folks so uh, i am reading that little novella it's like 160 pages so it's, it's like a borderline uh, and as far as listening to i have been a lot lately i've been listening to uh, an album called four uh, like iv kind of like uh, the led zeppelin album <laughs> but it's by uh, Timothy Seth Avett as Darling, which is one of the brothers from the Avett brothers, and he has this solo project that's called Darling with, that he does, and and so it's kind of stripped down songs that uh, I guess he felt were a, of a different kind of feel than the Avett brothers, whom I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, but the new uh, Darling album, which is the first one, and I think like almost ten years, I want to say it's been a long time. It was like 2007 or eight when he. He did the last one, and it's a really, it's a gorgeous album, and it's it's kind of hard to to track down. I mean, as far as like on streaming, like if you have Spotify Premium or uh, Amazon Music, it's it's not on there. But uh, 
uh, it's worth getting. I, I picked it up on vinyl and got the copy, the, the digital copy with that. And you can watch, I think, four or five of the songs on on iTunes. He, he released official videos of him playing them in his uh, writing studio, which is really cool. Tim, did you see that tweet from Justin Carey today? No. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. He goes. <laughs> he goes. I feel like most of the media I have consumed over the last year has been because Tim Wassum has talked about it on the Erasable podcast. Changing, so, changing lives. You are a thought leader. Tools of the trade, Tim. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was that was great. That was that made me very happy. I hope he's not like hating everything that he's reading and listening to. It's like I keep falling for all this crap that Tim keeps recommending. Second tweet was da da da, and it sucks. And it all sucks. <laughs> All right, yeah, um, yeah, that that made my day. So, um, and as far as what I'm writing on, I couldn't help myself but to get out my Hermes 3000. That's awesome. My favorite of my typewriters. I love this thing. So I've got that here. I will not be typing that during the recording, but I couldn't help myself from doing that. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, pencil wise. Um, I think you should do it a little bit. Okay, <laughs> maybe I will. Maybe I'll. <laughs> I'll bust it out at some random moments, but uh, behind, you know, in my my headphones, I have stuffed a Blackwing 24 with a new orange eraser that we got. The, there was uh, Ooh, nice. the folks at Blackwing sent me. So this is kind of a even better Halloween than than the last one I had. I feel like it's just all black with a bright orange eraser, which is super cool. Uh, all right, great. Well, let's uh, let's get into fresh points, get through these, and then we can get to our awesome interview with Doug Nickel. So Andy, why don't you? get us get us going yeah um (laughs) the only so so before the interview um we each have a fresh point here that's going to kind of be about our 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 own personal relationships with typewriters um and i'll definitely get to that in a minute but i i guess i have a couple i have a couple negative fresh points today um i'm afraid um why is such a down negative man damn the first one is our vibe (laughs) The first one is kind of unfolding as we speak, so I'm trying to like, you know, not go too deep on something here. But um, you know, it was announced yesterday that um, Field Notes did a collaboration with um, the clothing chain Abercrombie and Fitch, and they released three editions. One of them was a just basically like plain, completely black edition. One of them was a um, quote-unquote heritage edition which was um, has these like little scenes of like men like fishing and there's one with like geese or ducks or something on it um, and then there's an edition that's called a floral edition with all this like just like vintage floral stuff and I immediately saw this and I was like oh my gosh these are beautiful and I ordered a, a pack of each um, I didn't actually order the, the just plain black one I I ordered the other two and something that I sort of didn't even consciously notice until later that, um, you know, they, they, the Abercrombie website is basically split up in between like the men's section and the women's section. And in fact, you can't even like search across them. So if you want to search for the, yeah. for the women's field notes, yeah, you have to like, you know, click over to the women's section and find that one. And with the men's, you have to click over to that and find that one. And, you you buy the black ones on the website since they're so non-gender specific i can't find yeah um i don't know i i didn't see them either um on the website but like yeah they're only in store or something yeah 
So, and and it took like it. I think it shows just kind of like what, you know, how blind, you know, people with a lot of privilege are to a lot of these things. I'm a I'm a white dude. It took me, you know, it took somebody in the group mentioning that you know Blackwing hadn't had gone more than a year without releasing like a woman or a person of color as a tribute for a Blackwing. But I completely just didn't realize how completely gendered these packs are. And and I also didn't know. Uh, Abercrombie's like not that great of a company anymore. You know, they have this sort of like heritage of being uh, the sporting goods company where you could go and buy this like fine, like safari jackets and pith helmets and sporting equipment um, going back like, you know, decades and decades. And I guess they sort of like, you know, sold out in the 90s um, and became like a teen clothing brand like they are today. Um, and there's been a lot of like sexual like harassment allegations and a lot of body shaming that they do and a lot of offensive clothing. And I just didn't realize like what a, just like what a crappy company they are. Um, <laughs> and less, less Herger from the RSVP podcast and, you know, stalwart member of our group was, was kind of ranting about it. And, and yeah, um, we had a really interesting conversation with Brad Dowdy on Twitter just earlier today. Um, about that just like you know what you know aesthetically i you know love these two these two packs um i actually really like the floral ones over the the heritage edition oh yeah definitely yeah Yeah. and it's it's something where they're very very gendered and even like the innards are kind of gendered like the the men's edition has like you know check mark or uh has a grid system for like writing down charts and graphs and stuff and the women's is lined you know, for writing like, for f- diary thoughts. Feelings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, feelings. So it, it kind of begs the question, like, what's, you know, this is this is very highly gendered. Um, it's something that is a partnership between Field Notes and Abercrombie. And what expectations do we as Field Notes users have toward, um, you know, the the ethics of this partnership? You know, they they partner with Starbucks who have had, you know, had some, you know, they're a huge, like, multinational company themselves um, we, we like to think about their partnerships like with like mondo and landland and like little things like that but in fact they they partner with big organizations too j crew llb yeah yeah but um you know starbucks for you know folks that hate them and stuff like that they they have some check marks in the positive column as a company mm-hmm. that um abercrombie doesn't yeah so like I I bought a set of the floral ones for um my wife who's a person of color and I think the transaction didn't go through I got a notice from PayPal but not from Abercrombie and she was like typewriter bell it I'm not really <laughs> interested in them because um really there were a lot of lawsuits where um people of color worked in the back and white people worked in the front and um I remember when I when I graduated from college and moved to Boston for grad school in 01 like if you walked in the Abercrombie store in Quincy Market, there's like this really, really buff dude all kind of shaved and oiled up, just kind of flexing it in the doorway. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not making this up at all. Gross. Like, shaved okay. <laughs> like you're greasy. He's and real, like real no, slippery. And it's November and it's Boston. Like you've got to be cold because the door is <laughs> open. But like, yeah, their company's disgusting and gross. But you know, the, the, I guess the question is, how much did Field Notes just see this as like a really interesting, like aesthetic partnership? Because they're really cool looking, or at least the floral one is a really cool looking set of books. Yeah. 
And how much did they just not think about like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't partner with Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. I, I'm trying to like, you know, Twitter is the land of the hot takes and I'm definitely gave my hot take on Twitter, but I, I really do kind of want to see how this plays out. I, I know uh, through some friends who have like participated in this conversation um, that uh, Field Notes was like listening very carefully to this conversation. We were kind of including them in the in the Twitter convo. Um, so yeah, I'm I'll be interested to see how it plays out. I'm trying to reserve like you know like a fiery judgment until then. But uh, but yeah, it just kind of it before I knew I didn't know a single thing about Abercrombie. I just ordered these, and I do have to say that I I regret my order a little bit. So I guess I can get back at them by selling it for multiple times what it's worth back to the field nuts in a couple of years. So <laughs> it's really a damn shame because yeah. those floral ones are on linen paper. Yeah. Just like yeah. the nicest thing they put out. It's so pretty. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of that. The duck heritage one too, like that The ducks just sort of like flying up off the, off the page. It's just really pretty. I thought that one was kind of boring. <laughs> it's all quite right. all right. Like snooze. Yeah. So the, the only other negative thing, and then I promise I'll get a lot more positive. Um, <laughs> I, um, this is, and and it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard because like I'm friend, I consider myself friends with, with this company, uh, with people from this company. This is, this is with right. No pads. Um, they, uh, kind of did a, they did a vault sale yesterday for, for cyber Monday. And they basically released a very limited run of like, um, some of the like personalized editions that they've done for like other companies that they had extras of. They released, um, some more of the deluxe packs of the Kindred Spirits, which are just really yeah. my favorite ed- edition, and I love the packaging. And they had um, a kind of a amazing, you could buy one pack from all of their membership collection for $80. So that includes... Plus the Thoreau set. Yeah, so that includes like all the way back from the Lenore edition, which, as you pointed out, Johnny, is probably worth more than $80. Oh, hell yeah. In itself. Definitely. So uh, they were going <laughs> to... They teased it. We got an email. This is going to go up at noon, noon uh, uh, Eastern time. Noon-ish, which in Baltimore means before one. (laughs) He said said around noon. Um, And so everybody's reloading their their browsers. And sure enough, like uh, 12, let's say, let's say 1210, 1215 came around. Um, And there it was. (laughs) So at least he was was before the the half hour mark. Um, And... Lo and behold, um, you know they they didn't they didn't assign a shipping method to one of the products, and anybody who had this product in their cart couldn't complete their order. And uh, yeah, I kind of like understand like I've I've used this e-commerce system before, and I I think I knew what was going on. I texted Chris real quick, and he got it fixed, which was awesome. But um, we didn't communicate out to the to the group of people kind of like waiting around. Um, that you need to reload your browser and try it again. And uh, sure enough, things sold out pretty quickly enough that uh, people lost out on what they had in their shopping cart because it, uh, you know, it it expired and they ran out of stock. So it, I don't know, it was, I, I love, love write notepads and I love sort of the authenticity that you get with, you know, you know that you're talking with Moe's or with um, Chris on social media, on you know, Facebook on whatever, uh, when you talk to them, but I, oh man, they just, I feel like they need some infrastructure. You know, they have a following and I, I've said this before, Johnny, I, I think you need to just go have them pay you in notebooks and have you run their marketing. 
Yeah, that would do. Yeah. <laughs> Chris is like off Facebook now. Category. Yeah. Um, Instagram account, but he doesn't, he doesn't log in a lot. Yeah. And so uh, what's happening? They didn't. They had no idea what the hell was going on. Yeah. And I and I totally respect a per, like a personal decision to stay off Facebook, but when you have a brand and a company where so much of your following is there. I believe as a as a company you have some obligation to like kind of meet people where they are and participate that way. Um, so I I don't know what that means if it's something like, you know, it's a part time marketing coordinator like Andy Tellerico at Baron Fig. Although I think she's full time. Um, she is incredible and she is such a good steward to the community. And like Joey and Adam are also you know they're participating as well, but she's handling sort of the day to day stuff. So um, yeah, I would. They've kind of been radio silent since then. Uh, there's been a lot of angry people in this group, uh, in the Bright Notepads and Co. group. So, uh, and then also kind of to, to rub salt in the wounds, some of the automated like like marketing transactional emails went out later that said like, "Hey, you have some items left in your cart, and now is a great time to like finish." <laughs> oh <that."> man, <laughs> yeah, and nice. and that's and I totally know how that happens. Like you, like in Mailchimp or whatever service it is that they use for emails, like you can set that up so that happens. So people don't abandon their cart, and it's yeah, it's unfortunate that that's <laughs> that they, it continued to go through. So yeah, and and so I don't think this this isn't something that's putting me off right notepads. I I still think they're producing the best like themed pocket notebooks out there right now, in my opinion, um, and just such good quality and so much fun. But like. I would I would love to just sort of implore Chris and Moe's or whoever it is to like, you know, try to put some some like good just like communications infrastructure behind behind this stuff, um, so you can focus on on building this building the company and the brand and the products. So that is that is so, it for my soapbox. Sorry, Johnny, what did you so say? So I uh, feel like as a fanboy, I should weigh in and say something good. And that is the winter one is like, boom. No one will think of any other edition they've ever done after the winter one, including the pencils, which are coming back. That's what that convoluted uh, Instagram post was about. <laughs> that they're, you know, they skipped a limited edition pencil because um, they didn't have one with the fall edition, but they're back for yeah. winter. And like, Oh man, Chris will shoot me if I say any more, but like they're really, really awesome. Yeah. Like in two weeks, people are gonna be like, Oh, field notes? What a silly addition for winter. <laughs> well, hope hopefully he'll assign a shipping method to it and we'll get that out the door. <laughs> yeah, they'll screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm No, and I'm, also like yeah. publicly, like I would totally run their social media if they would let me. <laughs> I'd be very happy to do it for give, free. Give Johnny the passwords, guys. They give me enough free damn stuff. I mean, Christ, I could do the damn thing. <laughs> like, so, everybody's fighting over crab notebooks. I have one, yeah, but it's in black, and I really wanted the red one. So, and so, go on. I'm sorry. I mean, they 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 did do a um, like a hard. Everybody gets one of each, and that's it. Yeah. Um, policy that they were going to enforce, which I thought was pretty cool, and that some other companies might want to emulate. Yeah, if not the tech flub. That was yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and really, I think they could make things right just by like you know responding to people on Facebook about this because there's a lot of angry you know people and people are radio silent and they are. So, the winter edition is gonna make it all right. Yeah. 
Like well, they so. really, really, oh my God. In a month, I'm going to get a lot of emails. They're like, Johnny, you were right. I'm like, yeah, I know. Johnny, you're not a fanboy at all, are you? <laughs> that yeah. is a call. Yeah. It's cool. So yeah, um, <laughs> I I consider Chris a friend and I don't want to like rail too hard kind of in a public forum. I have the privilege of doing that, um, of having this. And I, so I want to, I want to like, you know, dial that back a little bit, but I, I would, I would love to see more like, you know, a communication strategy built out if you want to make it sound boring. So yeah, um, good additions. I can't wait for the next edition to come out. Um, it was a cool sale, really. That vault sale is a really great idea. And the um the free shipping from the Black Friday held over. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, a nice touch. I'll I'll give you my uh my typewriters and we can move on to your fresh points, Johnny. Yeah. Uh, so I I personally learned how to type on um my grandmother's manual typewriter. I don't remember what it was, but it was like a it's probably a Smith Corona. It was something that I think was from the seventies. It wasn't like super sexy or anything. Um, but I I definitely like carried over, you know, just having to like just super jam the keys in order to get them to type i carried that over to school and when i sat down with the apple twos and the the old mac classics that were in our computer lab i would just like hit those keys <laughs> my teacher would just be like <laughs> what are you doing Wellfleet, calm down even to this day with my <laughs> my super like low travel macbook keyboard that is really like sensitive like i i when i get typing when i'm on a roll i really jam those things down so um, I used to have four typewriters and when I lived in Indiana and when we moved out to California, uh, I tried to like cut that by half. So luckily I kept the ones that are, um, that mean something to me. I have a, I have a, um, like 1938, 1939 Royal Quiet Deluxe, which is, which is the one that Hemingway used, um, or at least very similar. Damn. And uh, it's in really great shape. I bought it from a friend who just like kept it in good shape, um, I need to take it in and get it kind of tuned up to to California typewriter in Berkeley, which we'll talk more about later. Um, but it has like it's just kind of your classic like cast iron typewriter, right? Like it's it's black. It makes that kind of like courier font type. I don't actually know what that particular typeface is called, but it's it's pretty classic. It has the round keys that just are you know covered by glass. Nice. Yeah. So I have that one, and then I have this one from the '60s. It's an Adler. Uh, it's a German typewriter brand. And uh, it belonged to my other grandmother, and she was a genealogist. She typed up sort of the history of the family with this very typewriter. And what's what's cool That's and cool. In- interesting about this thing is it types uh, script, so it's a cursive typewriter. Um, Yay! And it's it's in really good shape as well. Um, in fact, when I got it, they, it still had the manual, the typewriter manual, and it has all these like really like mid-century little kitschy cartoons of like little cartoon ladies and guys like on the typewriter diagrams like pointing to things i'll try to include a a picture in oh show yeah notes. yeah it's uh it's really cool so cool. Th- those are those are my two they mean like they have a lot of like personal value to me so i i'm glad that i kept these things around and i, I don't use them a lot but i do keep them i do keep them on a shelf um, but i do try to take them down and use them every now and then I, I probably need to get a new ribbon for one of them but can you put some um Images? Yeah, I'll uh, take some pictures. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Johnny, how about you? So I don't have a lot. Um, I've been doing nothing this month in my spare time except NaNoWriMo. And, like, seriously, my hand really hurts. My um, 
<laughs> so I'm writing this in dime novels, and dime the dime novel books from Field Notes are not, you know, they're not super expensive, but they're not cheap. You get two for 13 bucks, so I'm writing really small to fit it as much as I can, and that's really, really hurting my hands. So, like, I'm switching off to, like, you know, a big pan, a big pan and one of those, like, wood-turned holders to a pencil to a ink joy to a pencil. So, yeah. I mean, while, you know, paging through it, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, move up a size, my hand hurts less. Move down a size, my hand hurts less. So, but, you know, <laughs> writing enough that your hand hurts is never a bad thing. It's yeah. just the uh, just the act of switching and just changing to something else. Yeah. I mean, there'll be, like, in the in the middle of a, um, like, my story changes points of view a lot. And in the middle of a point of view change that's already a change, you know, suddenly it goes from an HB Faber-Castell pencil to a, gel pen that's really jarring but my hand is happy and um also happy hand I Club. yeah big that'd be a good band name <laughs> wasn't that so, from napoleon dynamite isn't that what they were called or the, i'm the only nerd like, in the world language? that's never seen that movie oh gosh okay yes yeah, like the, i thought that was the name of the the sign language performance group in, in napoleon dynamite but... <laughs> eat your dinner tina <laughs> <laughs> so sorry if you guys have uh staples near you they've been switching up their um you know they have they have a you know the pen and pencil section they have a art supply section a children's art supply section they have a drafting section and in the drafting section they sell various staler products and they've been switching them around so they're no longer going to carry the half dozen hb staler mars lumograph 100s so they're on clearance for $2 for half a dozen, which is insane because I'm pretty sure I've paid $2 for one of those before at some point in my life. So I've been going around to different staples in the Baltimore area and rating all they have. <laughs> so I've got a bunch of packs of them. So if you guys want some, I'll totally send you some. I think we have some staples around here. Well, if you don't make it, nice. got a pack with your name on it for each of you. All right. And the, you know they're they're first quality, really nice Staler. So I've been using those for NaNoWriMo because they react very well with the um, you know, sort of the tooth of the dime novel book, and they smell incredible. So yeah, if you're if you're in the Baltimore area, the one in Towson and the one in White Marsh have been picked clean by me. So <laughs> you know, try your luck at another one. If we meet up. Probably have I'm a, a reputation at those staples where they're like, there he is, there he is. Watch yeah. him. They just show you I'm go a... back and like scoop, it's take like... <laughs> the entire shelf of pencils off there and like. It's like I me mean, at the I've only found three packs, but still, I cleaned it out technically. <laughs> no, then they have um, there's like a drawing set that has a an eraser and a sharpener and a few drawing pencils for like five bucks, but that's not that's not as good of a deal as six uh, lumographs for two bucks. That's insane. I mean, three for two bucks would have been a good deal. But um, you know, if I run into it one, I'm a scrapper, so you might go down. <laughs> Moving on. So um, my typewriter stories are. My mom was a uh, secretary when I was really little. She went to secretary school, so we always had typewriters around our house. And um, she volunteered at the, the uh, Catholic elementary school I went to and typed up all of the contact lists. So there was a contact list of every one of the schools. Um, address and phone number, which I used to use if I, if I would like forget my math book, I would call someone in my class and get all the problems and do my homework. And that was my secret to never missing homework through all of elementary school. 
But um, my brothers and I used to play with them and, like, you know, put a G.I. Joe inside and, like, tap the keys and torture the G.I. Joe as they dance around. <laughs> like, <laughs> not healthy uh, behavior. But, um, you know, I was, like, I was a serious Luddite, um, you know, being a philosophy major. I used electric typewriters until the fall of uh, 99 when my parents sent me back to campus with my dad's laptop. They were like, you know, no more typewriters, catch up the times. But, um, you know, I used to, son. I would write my papers <laughs> like on paper and then type them on an electric typewriter. And like my papers from back then were so good. I've like never written as well as I, I wrote back then. So that should tell me something. And I remember as soon as I started using a laptop, I literally lost an entire term paper once because, you know, I'm, I'm older than you guys. It was a 1.44 floppy disk and the floppy disk died. So I was <laughs> Ooh, screwed. Yeah. Oh. I remember sitting there like trying to figure out for my paper notes how to rewrite this Aristotle paper in like three hours I had. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as good as it could have been. Hey, hey, but, um, I, I saved papers on floppy disk. I, yeah, I've, I did that. I, I remember when I first got a USB drive and I was like, this is amazing. I remember using yeah. zip drives because yeah. we had like oh, Max all over the place. Yes. Yeah, we used those. Oh my God, a lot. those things were nuts. Yeah. Yeah, huge. Yeah. I feel really old right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, um, I guess this time of year in 2004, a sort of family friend of ours who was sort of a philosopher, she passed away and I inherited her Olympia. I want to say it's an SM five with a telex script that works very well, but needs some, you know, uh, wear and tear attention. So that's like the only working typewriter that I have right now. It's, you know, you could Google it, I guess, for pictures. It's a beautiful typewriter. Her favorite color was teal. Everything she had was teal, and there are teal accents to this typewriter. So I assume that's why this was the one that she kept and did a lot of work on. But, um, yeah, I don't type as much as I should or could. But, um, I watched the documentary that we're going to talk about later with Henry because he was homesick with a stomach bug today. And he was super fascinated with the parts where the artist was taking the typewriters apart and where they had the, you know, the hood up and yeah. the uh, carriages and moving around. And all. So I, I pulled out my typewriter tonight and both my kids were like, Oh my God, can I use it? Like, no, <laughs> like if you touch this, I will bite off your hand. <laughs> but like, you should find we'll Henry an later. old, an old scrapper that like he can take apart. Yeah. I think there's some <laughs> scrappers in my parents' garage that belong to me. That's cool. That I should I should look up some of the like dark green three ton models. Hmm. But uh, yeah, Definitely. that's I I um. So when I was in my first half of college, I typed my papers on a typewriter that had a um, it had a delete key hmm. and an extra cartridge that hooked onto the regular ink cartridge. So it would, you know, if you wrote the word laptop, it would erase the word laptop because it had a little bit of a memory chip in it. So, yeah, that was it was almost a computer, but it wasn't a computer. You still had to go along in real time. So, yeah, um, that's it. How are you? How's your uh, typewriting, Mr. Tim? Well, uh, before I even get into that, I will just admit that I was a part of Nano Failmo. This this uh, this month, oh. I did not stick with it. I, oh. I wrote about. Almost fifteen thousand words, which is great. I'm happy well, that I wrote that. Nano uh, is only if you don't do it. 
You did it. So it's not a fail move. <laughs> I told you I won automatic by default. Yeah. I won my version. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wrote to that point, and then I had a water heater blow up and start leaking all over, which slowed me down for one day. And then I kept going a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. But uh, it just kind of faded away. Things got crazy. Couldn't keep up with the pace. I was on pace for 10 days, which is the most I've ever done in a row, which I was That's I was a proud third of, of a month. That's 15,000 yeah. words. That's not nothing. So, That's awesome. So I was happy with that, proud of that, um, but didn't finish. But I've got a lot of material now, which is great. Uh, as far as typewriters go, uh, as far as typewriters go, uh, I grew up with a typewriter in my closet uh, as a kid. Like for for years and years, I would look up in the top of my closet. My parents had stored this typewriter up there, which was my uh, great aunt's typewriter, uh, and it was it was in, it had been in the family for other people, I believe, as as well. But it was the story that I was told is that it was originally used briefly by my, I think it was my great grandfather who would use it to keep track of his beekeeping records. Um, it was his beekeeping what? records. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a little like Smith Corona junior. It's like little mini one. And now it's sitting behind my desk at school and I would pull it down and play with it and it still had like an ancient ribbon. And if I put paper in, it would leave, it would leave just like a, you know, just barely leave a, <laughs> a mark. But, um, but I, I played with that all the time. I loved it. And then sometime in high school, um, as I was, it was probably around sophomore, junior year of high school. I started to see typewriters around, and we had a Goodwill that opened up right across the street from our house. Right, I mean, like half a block away. It was like across the street and down. Um, and I used to go in there and look for books because there's just tons of books. This Goodwill, and I built up my my library. But I started to see that there were you know ten, twelve uh, typewriters there. And so one day, just kind of on a whim, I brought one home. Uh, it was a Smith Corona Galaxy, an electric one. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool, but I wonder what else they have. And then I started to just get into the habit of buying them. <laughs> and most of them I bought for less than 10 bucks at first. Um, I bought uh, a lot of Smith Coronas originally. And I've got one that's in script. Uh, and I also have a Royal desktop that I picked up at a in a similar situation. And I built up a collection where I think I have left. I have like 12-ish right now. Wow. Um, but that's probably, a lot of typewriters. Yeah, but only a few of them are in like actual working order. How many oh. of them are portables and how many of them are desktops? Uh, three of them are desktops. The rest are portables. Ooh, so I've the... got... Nice. It's a lot of I iron, two... sir. <laughs> well, I have two. <laughs> I have that Royal desktop one, which is in pretty bad shape. That one I had... I actually took it to school and just let my kids play with it uh, at school, which was probably a bad call, but they haven't done that much damage. It was just in pretty bad shape in the first place. But I have a... Uh, uh, Two IBM Selectrics. I have a IBM. I have a Selectric three and a Selectric one. Um, that the Selectric three was actually the first like hunt I went on for a for a typewriter, and I went and drove when I was you know junior in high school. I drove from Indiana to the north side of Chicago and found this people these people who listed it on uh, Craigslist and spent you know thirty bucks and carried it back with me. And the reason I went to look for it is. I went through that common phase in high school of those who like reading and writing where you get really into Hunter S. Thompson for like six months. Uh, and I, <laughs> I read a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. He used a Selectric, and I was like, that's what I want. So I went and found one, co- covered it with stickers and stuff. But, I, but it was in great shape. I remember I walked into this, this house of this uh, – it was actually it was just kind of funny because I was this you know, floppy-haired 16, 17-year-old high school kid, and I walked into this house of this uh, – 
was this Indian American family and there were like 30 people in the, <laughs> in the living room that were all like hanging out and having some sort of party. And I just like walked in and stood there while the, the mother of the house went and like carried this big ass <laughs> typewriter out to me. Uh, and I was like, Oh, thanks. And handed her the money. And it was a big experience. I remember driving home with it in the seat next to me. I could smell it. You know, I could smell that oily typewriter smell from the, from the next seat over. And I still have it sitting, sitting right next to me. Um, but yeah, but I've got a pretty decent collection, but like the, the one kind of prized one that still, I mean, I, I had it worked on, but it still needs a little work. I think is, is my Hermes 3000, which I talked about earlier and I've talked about before, but I bought that one on eBay, had it refurbished by a guy close by and I, I love it. It's a beautiful typewriter. I first had found out about it cause of Larry McMurtry and also, um, oh, what's the name of the guy who wrote, uh, wait, did he write Brokeback Mountain? He did write Brokeback Mountain. Is that? Yeah. And Lonesome Dove. Yeah, so he yeah. wrote all of his novels on a uh, Hermes three thousand, and it's a it's a beautiful beautiful typewriter, mint green, love it. Uh, but that's, I guess that's it. I just I've been collecting them for a while, and I've kind of stopped. I haven't bought a new one in, I mean, a while. But now, thanks to the conversation which you're all about to hear that we had <laughs> earlier with <laughs> with Doug Nickel, and thanks to the the uh, documentary itself, California Typewriter, I've I'm itching to add to the collection now and find uh and find the next the next edition it's something that's that i can get fixed up and use for a long long time nice so why don't why don't we get right into it we've got a we're really excited about this interview with doug nickel director of california typewriters and uh we hope you enjoy too now for our main topic of the episode we are thrilled to welcome a special guest to the podcast. His name is Doug Nickel, and he is the director of the new documentary California Typewriter, which came out last week on iTunes, and it's been in theaters in various places around the country, but it has come out to great acclaim. Uh, the uh, I know personally I saw the, the trailer several months ago, and then it started getting passed around, and all my friends were sending it to me, and people have been talking about it, and now it's here, and people love it. And Doug Nickel, thank you so much for joining us here on the Erasable Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is fantastic. When Tim, when you proposed this, I was like, "Well, it doesn't have a lot to do with pencils, but like, we can't pass this up. This is awesome." Well, yeah, I, I couldn't help I couldn't help but ask him. Mean, as much as we talk about uh, analog writing and slow processes of things, it just seemed like right up our alley. And we do talk about typewriters uh, fairly often. I know a lot of people, a lot of people in our our listener base are typewriter fans and use them on a regular basis. And so they will love to hear from you, and I'm sure we'll love to see your your documentary. Um, so thanks again for joining us. But uh, I think the natural place to start for us here is. We'd like you to talk about the origins of the film, kind of where, what was the seed of making this, and then uh, kind of like what led into, yeah, that initial step of, of making the film and deciding that this should be a, a feature-length documentary. Well, it started, you know, really just by chance. I um, One weekend I was reading um, an article in the New York Times, and it was talking about some artists who had found a um, Underwood five typewriter like at five in the morning on the streets of New York. And it was his favorite possession. And um, I hadn't been thinking about typewriters, but I thought Underwood typewriter. So I, I Googled, I mean, I um, looked up on eBay and I found a really beautiful one. It was only six bucks. And so I, I, um, I bought the typewriter and it, oh. you know, they sent it out to me. It cost six dollars and $30 shipping or something like that. <laughs> or $50, $50 shipping. Yeah. So heavy. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I set it up in my office as just an object of art in the corner, you know, something to look at. 
and it sat there for a while. And then, I, you know, it, it would, I, I'd go over to it and like push the keys and they, the keys didn't work. They were all like kind of frozen shut. And um, I don't know, it was just calling out to me to like fix it up for some reason. So I Googled typewriter shops and I could only find this one last typewriter shop over in Berkeley. And it was just open for a few hours a day. Um, and so I took it over there, walked in, met the family who owned the shop. And immediately, you know, I loved this family and I loved their passion for typewriters and how they were trying to keep them going, especially in a city, you know, in the San Francisco Bay where tech was really created. Um, so I, I decided to make a short film really to help them out because they were really struggling. They were just barely holding on. So I was going to make like a, a little YouTube three-minute thing, to almost like a long ad for them. Um, and I finished it, and uh, it came out really well. And a friend was working with Tom Hanks's wife on a um, on a project, and I showed her the thing, and she sent it on to Tom. And um, and he he loved it, and he said, you know, and I asked if he if he'd be interviewed, and he agreed. And that took about a year to get that interview lined up. Um, I, I love the like. Kind of, I love evolved. The, you know? I love the pure like joy on his face when he was talking about it. Like his eyes like <laughs> really lit up. And granted, that's Tom Hanks, but still, it was amazing. Yeah, exactly. So it, it was great, you know. And once I I got that interview, I just thought this could be more than a short. And I just worked on it. It was something. It was a passion project, you know, labor of love for me. So I, I pretty much made it myself. I shot it, directed it, edited it, um, did most of the sound, and um, you know, worked on it for like five years. And and like I said, it wasn't paid. Nobody else paid for it, so I didn't have to finish it for somebody. So I just mm -hmm. kept working on it until I was happy with it. And uh, and again, you know, the film really isn't. Even though it's about typewriters, it's more about um, for me about how things disappear in life. Mm -hmm. and whether you, you know, there's one story in the film that's about the past, which is about Martin Howard, one about the future, mm -hmm. and then one about now. So it's all about how we deal with things when they disappear, whether we're nostalgic and kind of sad, or whether we're looking forward to change, you know, and that was really what the film was about to me, even though I made it, you know, it was focused on typewriters. Yeah, that actually leads right into a question I, I wanted to ask you about was, was uh, crafting the kind of structure of the film because yeah I, I did recognize that it has these uh paths that it goes down where you've got the three you just mentioned and then also the kind of general commentary from notable typewriter users and i was curious to hear i mean you mentioned tom hanks being one of the first people that you kind of reached out to to get that interview but how did you what was the order of how all those kind of pieces came together i know that's a big question a lot to talk about but was it kind of a domino effect of one thing led to another thing and led to sam shepherd and led to <laughs> david mccullough i mean how did how did that all well it was a um, piece together there was a, it was like a project that had a number of prongs to it so there were the famous people i made a list of all the famous people who i had heard that were still using typewriters um and then i had the story that i was shooting you know, which was the, the shop and, and the people I found through it. But mm -hmm. as far as the celebrities go, first was Tom, and then from Tom, uh, David McCullough was next. And Tom and David McCullough had work, been working on a few projects together, so that was kind of easy. Um, and then came um, Sam Shepard, and then after Sam, uh, my wife was in the supermarket one day reading um, a Rolling Stone article, and John Mayer was in it, and he was talking about using his typewriter. And so I was able to get um, through my I, I did a lot of music videos so my production company had done some of his videos and I got in touch with him through through them and uh, he was totally totally up for it and super super great guy went up and filmed him in Montana 
So the type-in that you had in the film was from 2013. So can you talk a little about how long this has been in the works altogether? From yeah, like, so so the whole the whole project, like I said, I, I, I filmed famous people who were using typewriters. <laughs> but then I, I hung out at the shop. I just started hanging out there and filming people who walked in the door of this typewriter shop. And one of the first people I met was Jeremy Mayer, who is a sculptor from um, who's from living in Oakland at the time. And he takes apart typewriters and turns them into um, sculptures that kind of symbolize his vision of where man is headed, um, how we're going to eventually become half robot, half human. Uh, so I met him. And then Jeremy was, was great because he introduced me to Martin Howard, who's the um, typewriter, you know, antique typewriter collector. And then he told me about Ed Roche and Mason Williams, the Royal Road Test. So Jeremy um, so, so helpful in, of helping me into this world. And so I just kind of, like I said, I followed, I hung up the shop and filmed people and, and the stories just kind of gradually came together. Um, and then as I filmed the shop over those years, you know, they really hit rock bottom as far as um, finances. And um, so they decided to put on a type in to kind of revitalize things and, you know, get some interest going. And, um, you know, Jeremy and I helped put that together. Because Jeremy, you know, he got them online um, as well. He introduced them to, you know, the internet in a way. So we filmed that type in, and yeah, like Cheryl Lowry came, and a bunch of interest, interesting people in the Bay Area who were using typewriters, and it, it really, it lifted the the shop spirits and everybody there, and they started getting uh, business started picking up after that. And we kind of talked about this in the pre-show, but I. I love the like Cheryl and I are our friends. We both worked at Facebook together, and I just like love seeing her in that film. She was she was great, and I know that she's like super super tickled to have been in it. Um, for those of you, oh listening, yeah, no, she's yeah, no, but she's great. I mean, she she has so much um, so much to say about I think technology and analog and the how it doesn't have to be one or the other, but it can just kind of be a marriage of of, of every everything. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Jeremy, and and that was a really he's a really seems like a really fascinating guy, and the work that he does uh, is is beautiful, and in the fact that he and uh, Herb and and Ken that they're friends and that they're so connected to one another is really a beautiful part of the story, and they're such in some ways they look like opposites, you know, where you've got the the reconstructionist and then you've got the person who's uh, actually creatively taking them apart and destructing them. And it's almost so, it's just so perfect <laughs> for the, for the film itself and in a way to approach typewriters. And I just wonder if you could talk about how you wanted to approach that. Cause I know that's, uh, you can tell in the film that Jeremy felt or he knew that some people disliked what he did. They thought it was a sign that he didn't love typewriters, and actually, it's the you know the opposite. So, how did you try to approach that uh, dichotomy between the shop and Jeremy? Well, Jer yeah, Jeremy. When I first filmed him, the first thing I did with him, I filmed at his studio. It was actually the first scene of him in the film. He's working on this bust of uh, an old mm -hmm. man, and um, so you know, I filmed him, and um, and I you know started figuring out you know what he was doing, and I realized that he loved typewriters so much. You know, he loved them as much as the collectors, but he loved them in a different way because for him, he saw kind of the humanity inside the machine. And so his his whole thing is taking that apart and finding those parts and, um, you know, bringing out um, the human being, you know, bringing out us in the typewriter. And he, he turns the typewriter into human figures, which, you know, a lot of them are like almost uh, android looking 
people mm-hmm. that yeah and he's been trying to he's been trying to create this image of of where he sees mankind headed you know where we're going to be part man part machine you know we're going to change our dna we're going to become like you know this we're going to evolve into something else so that he uses the typewriter to try to express that i loved his connection with uh fritz lang's metropolis um the you know the the oculus offices are are right there connected to the facebook offices and it's just like kind of glorious just like hanging there from the ceiling um i've i've seen it and i definitely did not connect it to being made out of typewriter parts and being part of that so it's really really cool yeah it's 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 um yeah brendan who's uh, i forget his last name but he's one of the founders of oculus he he took a big interest in jeremy's work and he he commissioned that um piece for mark zuckerberg and uh that's in that's in mark zuckerberg's office i guess Mm -hmm. it's really cool But um, yeah, Jeremy. Jeremy's great. I mean, what I loved is the relationship between them. How, mm-hmm. you know, Herb, who owns owns California Typewriter, wants to repair, you know, keep these machines going, and Jeremy wants to destroy them and turn them into something else. But they have a friendship, and they really help each other. So, you know, when Herb has typewriters he can't fix, he gives them to Jeremy to take them apart, and then they'll go to the flea market together, like at Alameda, and they'll both be looking for typewriters. You know, one's looking for something he can like make a little money off of and the other guy's looking for one that he could just strip down that and, that um, scene is really they fantastic. Help each other. yeah i love that scene so much that when they, both of them at the flea market i know do yeah. you go to alameda much you, it's um like... i i actually have i have not been to that flea market only because it's very early in the morning <laughs> um i've right. been to the one that's on treasure island and uh it's a little bit lacking it's a lot smaller and doesn't have as many like cool like stuff like typewriters but now I definitely feel a little bit more uh, emboldened to get up a little earlier and go to Alameda. Yeah, I, I, it was funny. Like the whole time making the film, I'd go to Alameda yeah. and then you know pick up typewriters really cheap. And they're really they're going up in price now, which is amazing. Uh, all the people who are on the typewriter, you know, in the typewriter world, are all saying, "Damn, this film—it's turning." You know, the, everybody's <laughs> wanting typewriters now, and the prices are going up. You know, so. Yeah. Even even before, and I remember when I was in high school, I used to, I used to walk down to our Goodwill, and there'd be these perfect condition Smith Corona typewriters, and I picked up a big, you know, man, uh, desktop Royal typewriter, and I'd get all of them for under. I mean, like you got your six dollar one. I mean, I used to get them for nothing, and then all of a sudden, I, I live near Asheville, North Carolina, and then I remember moving or going over to Asheville, North Carolina, and walking into these shops and seeing typewriters and being so excited and walking up to look at them and then hmm. see. You know, four hundred dollars on it or something. I know, blew yeah, my mind. Crazy. Like, so yeah. um, that's yeah. that's actually very similar to a like leads right into a question I wanted to ask. Um, just about you know the idea of um, collectors versus users. Um, I think in the stationary world, you know, there's people who who buy really nice, you know, really nice vintage Blackwing pencils, and people who buy really nice like pocket notebooks made by Field Notes, and they just buy them in such quantities that they'll never ever use the the number they have. Um, mm-hmm. And <laughs> typewriters are interesting because, like, really, like, who needs you know more than one typewriter? But at the same time, mm-hmm. like, it seems like you know, like Tom Hanks and a few a few other people like genuinely use a lot of the typewriters that typewriters that they have. The Scholes and Glidden collector that was yeah. featured in the film meeting with Martin Howard. I mean, that was just. Doug, I am ready to go go find that apartment and break into it because it's in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, and send one. Yeah, that's how Martin it always Allen. is. Like Martin in the story, he just wants one of those shoals oh. of Glidden, which 
or you know, the, the, that was the Scholes of Glidden was the very first typewriter that was ever yeah. commercially successful typewriter that was made. And he's been desperately searching for just one. And uh, Jim Rowan, who's in the Bay Area, yeah. he's got twelve. And Jim has more than the Smithsonian has. But yeah. you know, it's it's funny about typewriter collectors; they don't want to get rid of their stuff. You know, even me, like like from making this film, I have eighty-five typewriters now. Since <laughs> wow! I, since <laughs> the process of making, I had to buy typewriters, do close-ups, and uh -huh. then I just got I caught the bug as well. <laughs> but now that I have all these, I was. I was only going to keep a few and give them away, but then I don't really want to give them away. I don't know. There's some weird thing, like, because yeah. they're so, each one is so unique, you know? Like somebody it's was saying, once, it's not in the film, but they're all like snowflakes in a certain way. Everyone is different. You know, everyone has their own, their own font and everything. It's all unique. So, you know, you won't get another one that's exactly the same. Yeah, I have to. I have to say that Martin's uh, sip of beer after asking to <laughs> buy a Scholes Glidden off of him was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever I seen. Know, like, he just, just <laughs> he's just sitting there and just kind of sips it and just like, man, I gave it my, I gave it a shot, and I just like, it was so painful for me. Yeah. I wanted him to get one so bad. Yeah, Martin's a great character. He, what I love, he provides the film with a lot of the humor, um, you know, and uh, which I think it, you know, it's it's nice that this film has a lot of laughs. I think. A lot of documentaries you don't expect to have laughs, but you know, especially when it's when it's shown in a movie theater, the audience really we, laughs a lot. And it's really of him nice. playing with his glider in the back in the <laughs> yes. backyard, and yeah, yeah. Oh, it <laughs> yeah, just exactly. seems like such a great we were great character, great guy. We were talking. His accent is really interesting. It um, it reminds me of William Daniels, who played Mister like Mister Feeney in Boy Meets World, and played um oh uh, uh shoot he played what's his name in um. He played John Adams in 1776, and I I didn't know that was a Canadian accent, but I did some research, and apparently it's called Canadian Dainty is his is Martin's accent. Well, yeah. Well, Martin was actually he was born in in London, but he oh, came over when oh. he was like six years old. So he's got he still has retained he still has retained the a bit of the British accent. So maybe that's British mixed in with Canada and uh, yeah. You know, I'd love great. to hear him host a radio show or something like i love listening to him talk he's got we'll just to... <laughs> have to get him on next i think yeah yeah definitely. yeah i was gonna fill, i was gonna make a little film with him this coming year because he has that twin brother yeah mm -hmm. um and so we're gonna they're gonna take a, a road trip to this twins parade um, so we're just gonna make a little short <laughs> what? It should be... oh, that's awesome. he and his brother that's he and his brother are very funny they're they're great you know yeah. great characters Makes me wonder if they just were switching out during the film, and I just didn't even realize it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't either. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what was the most difficult um, shot or scene or um, guest or personality, I guess, to film for the or to shoot for the film? Uh, that's a hard one. Um, nothing really difficult stands out in my mind. I mean, the difficult part of this was more the the editing. That was hard. Mm -hmm. um, Shooting wise, I mean, the opening, the Royal Road Test, because because since I made this movie, I had mm. no money. You know, I I did that whole opening. Um, yeah, that was really beautiful. Know, yeah, that was. Yeah, that was yeah and it, it actually has it looks 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 like it's a higher budget than it is. But um, uh, yeah, you know, that was a hard one to pull off. You know, and I, I had to use different cameras, and we actually threw the typewriter out the window. It just missed destroying the camera. I was wondering about one that. of us getting hit. <laughs> and, yeah. It was, it you was like that was car. not the way to shoot it, like professionally. You know, I mean, we would have been <laughs> shut down by the safety, you know, safety guidelines if we had, somebody had seen us shooting that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and finding the the car and the license plate and everything. I mean, there are some great little details in there. Yeah, I tried to I tried to read, you know, because the the film opens with the Royal Road Test, which is something that Ed Ruscha and Mason Williams did. It was one of their first art books back in the '60s, where they threw a typewriter out of the window of a moving car going 90 miles an hour, and then they went back and rephotographed uh, it as like a crime scene and created a, an art piece from it. Um, so I really wanted to get it right. So I, I searched. They they had a specific car, like a um, a Buick, and I found that same car in the same year. And I bought the car, and you know, I just I, I tried to make it as as perfect as I could, you know, because that's the only part of the film that's um, a recreation. You know, in recreation, some people in documentaries don't like recreations, but I tried to make it so it didn't really stand out, so it looked like you were really felt you were kind of there, you know. Mm-hmm. But back to your question about what was difficult, it wasn't the shooting, it's more the editing, because since I edited this myself, I it was so hard for it to come together, and I, I, I would go out and film things not knowing where they would go, but I would create like index cards with that scene, and I, my office was just, all the walls were covered with these index cards, and I would just sit there and try to figure, make connections, like, oh, this scene could go into this one, and, and it was just... That, you know, it took years to actually put that together. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's times you think you're really stuck and where's this film going? And all at once you look at one card that's on one wall and one on the other and you say, oh, yeah, of course, if I put that there, then, this. you know, it's like putting together a huge um, jigsaw puzzle with like mm-hmm. 5,000 pieces or something. <laughs> you know, you, and you, you think you're missing a piece and all at once you find that one piece and it works, you know. Uh, so with all those pieces of the puzzle it makes me you know want to ask what you know having made it and spent so much time on this and and so much putting so much sweat into it uh, what is are there any things that are laying on the cutting room floor that you would have loved to include but uh didn't just fit the overall structure that you might still like to talk about or, or even share someday yeah there were two there's one big story that became a big chunk of the film i had to take out which was um you know herb who owns the shop um, used to, he was the repairman on the UC Berkeley campus back in the sixties. And so he repaired all the typewriters and, and that's when Theodore Kaczynski was there, who later became the Unabomber and Kaczynski was in the engineering department there. And so oh. Herb would repair those typewriters. And, um, and I held wow. the whole angle in this film about technology and where we're going. And, and, um, so there's the whole story of, you know, Kaczynski, you know, he was brilliant and he, but then he became mad and he went to became a madman, went to Montana with a typewriter and typed that manifesto. And then he killed all the people, you know, sending them bombs and stuff. So I had that whole wow. angle and then how in the FBI had come to Herb's shop, looking at typewriters and matching font faces and stuff. And then I found a, an amazing typewriter collector in, in LA named Steve Soboroff who collects typewriters of famous people. He's got like John Lennon's typewriter and Ernest Hemingway and, what? All these famous typewriters. Yeah, he he has the greatest type, typewriter collection that, around. What was, what that was guy the was amazing. That guy was in the Steve 2013 so, film, wasn't he? So Steve Soboroff. He no, he didn't. I didn't. I actually we filmed him, but it, it got cut out. But he actually owns the Unabomber's typewriter. So wow. I had this whole thing about the future wow. and and people trying to stop technology from moving forward, and about Herb and um, it was a nice backstory because Herb's story. He also when he was at Berkeley. You know, during the day he had a um, he had a tie and a nice white shirt on, and he would repair these typewriters for the campus. But in, in the evening he would go and repair the typewriters of the Black Panthers. Um, so he had this kind of life where he was caught between his 
button down job and then his, you know, like believing in a certain cause. And it was, it was a very interesting story, but it was, it was about 30 minutes long and it was too long. I had to cut, cut it out. That's for mm-hmm. California typewriter part two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe I should make it maybe someday a little, little one-off short or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, that'd be yeah. fantastic. Huh. And then I had one other great story about this guy, Douglas Phillips, who's an artist in San Francisco, who's really into the craft of letter writing. And he, he makes these beautiful letters and he, um, that he types. And he, then he collects, he takes stamps, like old, you know, very valuable stamps, and he actually puts those on his letters. Because he, he believes that you shouldn't save stamps in a book, that a stamp was meant to be on a letter. So he, he sees it as he's sending those stamps on their journey they were always supposed to be on. Oh, that sounds really fantastic! Beautiful, yeah. beautiful little story, but it it didn't it didn't fit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, so one thing um, I guess I had a question about is there was there was definitely a lot of underlying talk in the film about whether or not uh, the resurgence of typewriters is a fad, um, and I don't I don't know if you guys ever came to a conclusion about that, like on the film. Um, do you do you feel comfortable like speaking to whether or not like you think this is something that's that's a fad or if you think this like kind of newfound interest will last? I think it's just like, like vinyl or, or like people who are now discovering, um, you know, film like 35 millimeter film and shooting. Um, I think it's just a reaction. One thing is a reaction to another. So, you know, a lot of people, um, are kind of just tired of social networking, the internet and stuff. And it's a way to withdraw from that, you know, to, to sit down and type and just be away from all that. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's like, yeah. I think people are, are finding, you know, like especially kids, you know, kids are now huge customers of the typewriter shops. So they're at, they're dragging their parents in and asking them for a typewriter. And I think it's yeah. kids have grown up touching glass. They've, you know, iPhones and iPads and that's, that's their interaction. And, um, and that, and they find it now so cool to actually push down on a key and see a letter created by their own hand and so i think it's just a you know just like vinyl i mean although vinyl some people say you know the sound is warmer on records than it is on digital mm-hmm. and you know like some people say i'm going to write better on a typewriter than on a computer because i'm going to think about what i'm going to say before i say it so yeah. i think you know john mayer says later in the film that we don't have to get rid of one good thing to just because we embrace something else it's like you know, you can live in between. It's like write a book on a typewriter and promote it on Twitter. You know, you, you can use the spectrum. You don't have to just be one or the other. And that's... I love... Sorry, go on, Tim. Uh, I love David McCullough's point, like kind of on the other side of that, the the idea that the more difficult the process is, it can yield a better result in his his experience. And I think that's something that we, talking about analog writing tools of other kinds too, would just like definitely... Um, yeah, it just I, makes I, it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think all good art is is done within limitations. So, um it's like if you were to paint and somebody, you know, and they give you a canvas that's maybe, you know, 11 inches by 11 inches or something and they say, you know, you you can only use uh these three colors and you can only you can only use 18 brush strokes. That's all you can do. You know, mm. you're going to be as cr- really creative working in those parameters. Whereas if somebody says, here, just make a painting, you'll, <laughs> you'll be lost because you won't know where to begin. So I think it's, it's nice to have things that, although I don't know if that relates to what we're saying about the typewriter, but, but, yeah. but to have, you know, have um, a set of 
parameters or or to make things a little bit more difficult for you because when you, they are difficult then you'll then your creativity will blossom in and that. It, mm-hmm. and it know? totally and relates get, sorry yeah. go on. i think when things get too easy in life uh, then then we slough off and then we aren't we aren't razor sharp with our our ideas you know what i mean it's like i think things are better when they're when they require some effort yeah and, and i think it totally relates to typewriters i think um you know there's no delete key on a typewriter and uh, you know yeah. you just you just have the one font and you have to sort of proceed in a in a linear fashion um it's embrace your mistakes yeah th- there were a few things that i <laughs> i took a little bit of issue with with john mayer but definitely the thing that i connected with the most was sort of using that as as recording your stream of consciousness so mm-hmm. you know it's it's you just kind of go and go and go and you can't really like stop and delete a paragraph and try again and you know do it over again um, so well, yeah. also he's he's got yeah for him he has a typewriter set up with a piece of paper in it yeah <clears throat> and um, so he'll just you know it's sitting there and it's always on you don't have to go up to it and you know like if you want to if you have an idea right and and you're just on your iPad or iPhone you still got to go over you know turn it on um, it's gonna open up you're gonna open Check the Twitter thing or whatever, <laughs> you know exactly all this stuff is gonna stop you from you've got an idea whereas if the typewriter is there you just go over and you start typing and it's and it sits there and then you know, you can just continue on. And I think even like McCullough, when he writes, he he writes and it's got mistakes and everything, but then he takes those pages out of the typewriter, takes a pencil and sits in and crosses things out and hooks this sentence to that one. And then he goes back and, and does a second draft. Um, you know, and that's that kind of the, the, it's almost like you're carving something, you know, like it's a handcrafted thing. You know? mm-hmm. So speaking of different, um, you know, analog methods, so you know we talk about pencils a lot and mm-hmm. whole different and processes that you have to use or go through if you're going to use them for writing. So what makes typewriters different from other analog tools like pencils or pens or you know chalk or what have you? Um, well, for instance, uh, you know, like uh, you know, if your handwriting is bad, you know, people can definitely read your type <laughs> typewriting ones better. But um, <laughs> I, you know what's interesting about a type you know, like a typewriter compared to type, like, let's say a computer, when you print something out, when you type it, the ink is actually stamped into the paper, right? It's actually ink stamped into the paper and it will last for thousands of years if you keep it out of the sunlight. Whereas if you print something on your, you know, laser printer or whatever, or um, inkjet printer, that's on top of it. And that will, that will fade after a few years, you know? So Mm -hmm. there's a permanence to a typewritten page, Mm -hmm. which is great. But uh, but again, yeah, you can pick up a pencil and and, and it's the same kind of thing, um, you know, a typewriter, you know, it's just an it's another, you know, I think pencils or or pens or um, typewriters they're all of the analog world, whereas you know they're all of the same kind of family, mm-hmm. where you know, and I'm sure back like when people were handwriting stuff and the typewriter came in, everybody was having the same discussion. They were saying like, oh, those are so impersonal. You know, you got to write it by hand, you know? So yeah. what was that? You know, there ad is something that you, to be said. Yeah. The ad that you, there was an ad that you showed that was like, like finally a typewriter. It is a tool to supersede the pen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. So in a way that, you know, the computer superseded the, the typewriter. So, you know, maybe in, you know, 200 years, there'll be some, chip in your brain you'll say that's going to supersede the computer where you know you don't need it anymore just plug this chip in your head and any any idea you have will be recorded perfectly and then we'll be saying god don't it was so nice to have 
computer, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Who knows? <laughs> It'll be people like the purists will be going back to old MacBooks and things and being like, it still works. Look at it. You just got to have the right. Yeah, part. I mean, I, I have like, you know, five Macs and I like the, I was in the room when Steve Jobs in, introduced the iPhone. You know, I've always been super into high tech mm-hmm. and stuff, but but I, I love typewriters and I love, um, you know, the beauty of them. And and, um, and I, 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 I use them all the time. I, I, I have this one that I use for writing letters and I actually write letters to friends and put, you know, I, I copied what Douglas Phillips did, which is I went on eBay and I found a bunch of stamps you know that are non-use so i have a whole bunch of old stamps i you know and you put enough of those on and then you get up to the postage and send it off i I like that yeah so uh, over the part over the process of this film like i assume like getting so deeply embedded into this analog stuff might have changed you know how you saw the people who use it which i'm sure it did and also we want to get into your uh use of typewriters yourself but what could you like in a in just a brief could you briefly profile what you see as a 21st century typewriter user like the people who still hold on to these kinds of things like what did you learn about that type of person uh, the analog type horrible well, pun, you know, they're, pun all, they're all different i mean on one hand you have um tom hanks you know who uses he's got a lot of them and he uses them every day to write letters to people and uh, you got John Mayer who's writing all of his lyrics on them, um, and then you have people who are, um, you know, I've met at the typewriter conventions and stuff, you know, that I filmed. Um, you just have a whole bunch of unique people. I mean, like Cheryl Lowry's into them. I don't think a typewriter user can be so defined, you mm-hmm. know, as like, mm. you know, I guess you could say that guy's a vinyl guy, or I mean, the, the, <laughs> the you know, you could say like, you know, the typical thing is like it's going to be like a hipster, you know, like with a beard and, you know, uh, something, I don't know, but I don't think that, I don't really think that works. I think I find I've through this film, I've met so many different people who've come to them for so many different reasons. It's funny. And I met one day I was filming and this guy, this huge guy who's uh, at like Twitter and Snapchat. He's like one of the head guys over there. You know, he was coming over and getting a, a typewriter. So, um, you know, that you got tech people who are buying them just cause they, they feel burnt out by, you know, tech sometimes and they need to take a break they need to take a digital sabbath or whatever yeah like analog relief yeah can can confirm (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i actually um it's really interesting we we didn't talk about this before but the um the woman that you uh interviewed who is a um, typewriter poet i actually just the day before watching this film i was at the um the etsy fair in uh just over over in the piers something in barcadero and i i met her there oh yeah yeah she was yeah she's yeah yeah. She's great, Sil- Sylvia Alcivar. Yeah, um, she's a great poet, and she's um, a fixture at so many San Francisco, um, you know, events and things. She she comes and sets up her typewriter and does poetry on demand, and people come up to her and tell her something about themselves, and she writes them a personal poem. Um, and uh, she's great. I I love that whole section of the film with her. It kind yeah. of it gets into the kind of mystery of. You know who who's operating the typewriter? Is the typewriter pulling the strings? You know, is the typewriter create, making the author do the work, or is it the are you when you operate doing it? It's like where do the ideas come from? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of another theme in the film about creativity and where where are where where ideas come from. That's fantastic. Well, you know, we we don't want to take up too much more of your time, but before we close, can we ask you a few questions about your like your own 
use and love of typewriters and kind of what you what you like to use and maybe to start you can tell us like of those 85 typewriters that you've amassed i mean is are there a few that stand out that you like to use you know on a fairly regular basis that you keep coming back to yeah, your desert island typewriter oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> which it would work I mean, on a the, desert island but <laughs> by the way I, I know in the film like i we asked tom hanks that um and he picked his favorite was a smith corona silent typewriter mm-hmm. um which he likes because it's kind of like, you know, it just feels it's easy to push the keys and stuff. Um, I've collected Olympia typewriters that I really like uh, because they're, they're almost like Rolex watches. They're the finest made typewriter. They last forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was funny because after um, originally when I filmed John Mayer, he had a brother typewriter, but then he met Tom Hanks not too long after I I filmed him. And then Tom said to him, Oh, you can't have that brother. You got to get a, let me send you a good typewriter. So he sent him a, an Olympia and, and then John got totally hooked on Olympias. And so now he's, I think he's got, he must have 10 or 12 Olympias. Uh, I'm guessing, but he, he's totally into those. But my favorite typewriter is in, is uh, an Erica 10. And um, it has this really beautiful font and, and, and actually just the shape of the typewriter is so beautiful. Like the curves on it, it's almost like a, um, not a Ferrari, but I mean, it's just got beautiful, you know, it's, some of these typewriters were designed as well as cars were designed. I mean, the look, the look of them, the curves. And Hell yeah, this so is I really gorgeous. Like this. Yeah, I like this, this Erica 10. It's really beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm looking at one right now. Yeah. Yeah. But then I like, I've been collecting, um, you know, um, Olympias as well. And I, I like them for the the fonts. You know, I try to find ones that have, you know, a script font or, or, or the certain fonts that have caps, you know, like, um, you know, large and small. I think we were talking about that earlier, mm-hmm. pre-air. I have um, an, I have an Adler, yeah. an Adler typewriter that is, is script. It's cur- a cursive font. It's really gorgeous. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, Adlers are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. But, um, yeah, so, I'll probably keep, you know, go to Alameda Flea Market. That's That's been a great place to find them. I'll meet you there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what is your favorite typewriter that you don't actually have? Um, is there one that I don't have? Oh, yeah. You know, well, I think I found <laughs> Is there one of, that I don't I, have? I, I, used to, I used to like, um, <laughs> I like these Everest typewriters, these red Everest that were made. Um, they stopped making them in the early 60s. And they're so beautiful. Though. It's like, it, it has this, like curves of like a Ferrari, like a, a 1950s or 60s Ferrari. It's oh, really wow. beautiful. Very That's rare pretty. to find them. And they're great. I really like those typewriters a lot. Um, and I like Voss, V-O-S-S. They're great. Um, you know, and Olympias and, um, like I said, my Eric, I really like. And I have a few old ones, you know, from hanging out with Martin Howard and following him around. I, I got some really old type. I have the first um, Smith typewriter and an mm. Oliver typewriter. I got all these really, you know, uh, late, like 1890s typewriters, too. That, which, hanging out with, which don't work, you know. Yeah, hanging out with that guy would not be good on my budget. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, he's funny. Yeah. He's a great guy. So um, I guess I guess my question would be, um, what are some tips that you might have for folks looking to buy a typewriter? Um, just maybe maybe a, a nice entry-level typewriter to get into it, or if they didn't have hundreds of dollars to spend. Um how should they look for it, and what should they look for? Well, you know the Smith Corona fifties uh, ones, like like Tom Hanks's favorite, which is the Smith Corona Silent, is a great one. They come in, you know, you can get them in light blue or brown or green or pink. Those are really really nice typewriters, and um, 
um, Olympias are, are a little harder. They're more precision. But um, I think the Smith Corona is a, is a good good starting one. Uh, Royals are great, too. You know, a Royal or Smith Corona are the... I have a, a Royal or, Quiet or Deluxe friends. from the late 30s. And of that era, I think that was the one that was... It's still, like, the most common and it's still in really good shape. It's just really great. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> great. That's what Hemingway used to use. Yeah. Royal, yep. That yeah. Royal. Yeah. yeah, I remember I uh, I ordered... I was in college at some point when I was in college and I had found out that Larry McMurtry uh, used a Hermes 3000. I think it was. Oh yeah, exactly. Those are great. Yeah. And I, I bought one, I found one on eBay, which even then they were expensive, I guess. Um, but I found one on eBay and it was 30 bucks, but it was broken. And I carried it around for 10 years until I found a guy in the mountains here that's retired and he repairs them in his basement and he fixed it all up for me. And I've got that that thing sitting over here and like you can find some really good deals and then there you can be you might be surprised uh, people who are looking to have one fixed that there are a lot of people around who still or not i don't want to say a lot but there are you'll be surprised that there are people around who still fix them I and mean, i just found this guy in the yellow pages um yeah well yeah i mean that typewriter is uh, that i forgot that one i love the hermes 3000 that's the one that sam Shepard uses in the film yeah i have the one that's like a little more rounded that's behind tom hanks when you're when you're filming right him. that's that's yeah, that was replaced by the one that Sam Shepard uses. Sam uh-huh. Shepard uses a 1960s version. That was like a, a late 50s one. Mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, people are learning the art of typewriter repair. And I think, you know, Ken over at California Typewriter, that's his hope is that he'll find somebody who will want to walk in an apprentice under him so he can teach them what he knows so that, mm-hmm. you know, there are people who still can repair these. Because once the guys who know how to fix them are gone, you know, it's going to be kind of tough, you know. And I, I assume that we, I, I looked around on their website a little bit, but if somebody has one that they want to have fixed up, I mean, it is an option to send it to California typewriters and help those guys out. And they will, yeah, exactly. they'll take them and ship them back to you. If I'm, Am I correct in that? Yeah. I mean, a great way to do it is, is you buy one on eBay, you know, that um, maybe needs a little bit of love, send it to mm-hmm. California typewriter and let them fix it up, put a new ribbon on it, tune it up for you. And there you go. Oh, you, just, you can just have it shipped straight to them. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. That's I'm awesome. A, I'm 100 yeah. percent taking idea. my two typewriters in for a tune-up. Like my my one is a little bit dusty, and the dust gets in the you know the the oil, and it's just a little like gummy, so it's a little bit sticky. So I mm. yeah love that, and I I I guess I have the privilege of being able to just drive it over instead of instead of having to <laughs> to ship it. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can I send mine to you? And you could take it. Off. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. You drive it, come over and drive it back. Yeah. Bring a whole mess of typewriters. Um, well, Doug, this has just been an awesome conversation. We've had such a great time talking to you, and we're really thankful for you to spend your time uh, with us today. Probably at the end of a of a work day. And anybody who's who's listening who hasn't seen the documentary, please go out and find it on iTunes uh, or buy a copy, you know, physical copy and watch because it is a really, it's a spectacular piece of work and we're really happy that it exists and happy that we were able to talk to you about it because it is um, really, really a great piece of filmmaking and, and great for our world, I think, with this, the idea of the slow, slow work and the analog tools, the things that uh, are still sticking around and there's a reason they're around. So thank you so much for that. Well, thanks for having me. Great yeah. talking to you guys. And and we have to end, you know, you You've you've finished this documentary and now is your chance to make a film about pencils and can we be in it is our is our final oh, question. Oh yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Just line it up and I'll, I'll bring my camera down and we'll start production. Perfect. All right. Glad we set up. <laughs> Perfect. We finally all meet in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. Bye, you guys. Nice talking to you. It was great talking to you too.
Well, it was such a treat to talk with Doug Nickel. Uh, we're so thankful that he he uh, shared his time with us. You can find the movie online everywhere. It's called California Typewriter. It is in digital copy. You can get it on iTunes. Otherwise, there are a lot of places that you can find physical copies of the DVD or Blu-ray, whatever. And we really encourage you to go and, and, and check out that film. It is fantastic. And I think a lot, the majority, all of our listeners will really, <laughs> will really love it. Uh, you can find uh, the, there's a kind of a whole rich world of, of social media accounts around this this uh, film, you can find the official movies type or uh, the official movies Twitter account at Cal C A L type T Y P E film on Twitter. Doug himself is Doug underscore Nickel on Twitter. And once you watch the film, I encourage you to look up some of these people that are in it, especially Jeremy Mayer, uh, who's on Instagram and Twitter and makes beautiful. Uh, uh, Sculptures. Sculptures. Thank you. (laughs) Out of (laughs) discarded typewriters. So uh, check out all of that. Uh, uh, I am Tim Wassum. You can find me on Twitter at Tim Wassum and on Instagram at Timothy Wassum. Johnny, where can people find you on the internet? So I'm on pensilrevolution.com, on Twitter at pensolution, and on Instagram at my whole name with no underscores. How about you, Andy? I am on Twitter at A-W-E-L, F as in Frank, L-E. Same on Instagram. And you can find my website at andy.coffee or woodclinch.com. Cool. Thanks again for listening to episode 86 of the Erasable Podcast. Uh, If you haven't already, which uh, most of you probably have, and if you haven't, get on it. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash erasable. I hear it's fantastic. And also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash erasable podcast. We are on Twitter and Instagram at erasable podcast, and you can find the show notes for today's episode at erasable.us slash 86. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The intro music for the Erasable Podcast is graciously provided by This Mountain, a collaborative folk rock band from Johnson City, Tennessee. You can check out their music at www.thismountainband.com.